Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast listeners. We have a great show for you today. Our guest has over 40 years of experience on Wall Street, includes many famous institutional investment advisories with some of the top global asset management firms you've heard of, Smith Barney, Kidder Peabody, Prudential. He's a pioneer in the development of market analytics and helped start Market Technicians Association, as well as the International Federation of Technical Analysts. Welcome to the show, Ralph Akampora. Thank you, Meb. Thanks for inviting me. Super excited to have you on today. By the way, listeners, is Tuesday, January 22nd when we're recording this. And uh, there's been a lot of excitement once again in markets after 2017. Pretty mellow for a lot of people. But but let's rewind a little bit, Ralph. I'm sure most of my audience knows who you are, but take me back a little bit. I would love to hear kind of the beginnings, the origin story of how you started to get interested in markets, and we can go from there. You really want me to go back to my beginnings? I, I, I Even as far as you can go. All right. Well, let me update the uh, introduction you gave me. It's 52 years in, in Wall Street. In 1967, I was a young seminary student studying for the priesthood of the Archdiocese of New York. And on a weekend, I went and visited my parents. My father gave me the keys to his brand new Buick. He said, put a scratch on it and I'll kill you. Well, the car got totaled with me in it. Make a very long story short, I was in the hospital having major surgery. I was semi-conscious for weeks. Not for the thank of God, I'm still here. And while in the hospital for the next four or five months, I was in a body cast. My father's best friend came and visited daily. And uh, Mr. Downey was uh, a Wall Street guy, and he, whatever he was reading, he threw in the bed. And I was, there was my first introduction to Wall Street. <laughs> I was like an inverted turtle lying on my back reading the Wall Street Journal. And uh, a couple months later, I said to him, I said, Mr. Downey, I, I, I enjoy reading this stuff. He says, oh, that's research. If you want a job, I'll get you a job in Wall Street. And months later, I, I took him up on it. Wherever he introduced me to, they all wanted an MBA to be an analyst, and I didn't have an MBA. So I was on my crutches, and I saw a Wall, an ad in a Wall Street Journal that said, junior analysts wanted no experience necessary. I said, boy, that's my job. And the fellow gave me the job, handed me a book. He said, you read this book and come in Monday. You can work for our firm. And the book was Technical Analysis by Edwards and McGee. That was the Bible and technical analysis, and it literally changed my life. So it was literally by an automobile accident, by accident that I got into the business. It's it's funny those life's life's little what seemed like I mean yours yours was more of a major event, but what seemed like probably a minor happenstance, which is the newspapers or bringing by the the research, um, ends up being career. Um, so so you know it's interesting because technical analysis is a topic that has had many sort of transformations over the decades. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about a broad 
description of what it means to you. And then kind of as, as we go through, I want to start to talk a little bit about more how it's, how it's kind of changed over the years and your, your early beginnings with it. Well, taking my start with the Edwards McGee book, the firm that I worked for was a little mutual fund called Distributors Group. And the man that ran the fund was a man by the name of Harold Streeter. He was a former economic advisor to President Eisenhower. My job was to update his economic charts and his uh, point-and-figure charts for the firm. And one day I said to him, I said, uh, Mr. Screeter, why am I spending half my life putting little X's and O's on a piece of paper? And he said to me, son, did you ever feed chickens? I looked at him kind of crazy. I said, chickens? I said, no, Mr. Screeter, I'm from New York. I, I don't know anything about chickens. He said, well, I grew up on a farm in Ohio. And he said, I used to feed chickens. And here's how you feed chickens. You take chicken feed in your right hand, you throw it over your left shoulder, and the birds run to your left. And you take chicken feed in your left hand, you throw it over your right shoulder, they run to your right. I, I thought the man was a little crazy. And then he said, after you do that, you look down, and what do you see? I don't know. I said, you see little footprints? He says, yes, they look like little X's. And now you know where the birds are going. That's why you're doing point-and-figure shots for me. Isn't it great? <laughs> and then, in those days, again, way before computers and things, I had to, every morning, go to a place called Morgan Rogers and Roberts, which was on 150 Broadway, I'll never forget it, and pick up my point-and-figure price reversals. And then I would bring them back to the office and then update all the graphs. Well, it was on the receiving line one morning. I met a young fellow who was about a year or two younger than me. His name was Johnny Brooks, and Johnny and I became good friends. And uh, we were both also doing the same thing for each other, for our respective firms. And then John and I were also junior analysts at the New York Society of Security Analysts. That's where all the analysts would meet, all the fundamental analysts and would meet to discuss their industries and meet with corporate America. In the old days, if IBM wanted to meet analysts on Wall Street, they would have a lunch at the New York Society of Security Analysts. And all the analysts, fundamental analysts that followed IBM from Merrill Lynch and Goldman Sachs and wherever, would meet, have the luncheon, raise, raise their hand, ask questions of the CEO of IBM, and, and get their information. And today, of course, the analysts go visit the companies. In those days, the companies came to Wall Street. Interesting. And Johnny and I were kind of jealous of the fundamental analysts because they would have breakout groups where the chemical analysts would get together and talk about their industry or the drug analysts. And, the, and Johnny and I said, gee, wouldn't it be great if we had a breakout group with technical analysts? So Johnny and I went back to our respective bosses and we asked them. And at this time, I was now working for a fabulous uh, technician called Alan Shaw. It's, uh, the firm was Harris Upham, which Morton Smith Boney years later. And Alan, uh, I was in, I guess I was around 27, 28 years old. Alan might have been around 34 or 5. And he said, well, can't talk to us to uh, give you the final blessing. You have to go to the senior citizens in the technical community. And those senior citizens were men in their 60s and 70s and maybe even 80s. And we respectfully went to them. And they said, one of them, gentlemen, was Ralph Rotman. Ralph, very few people know his name, but Mr. Rotten was director of research at Harris Upham, and you heard of year-end rallies, summer rallies, four-year cycles, presidential cycle. That was Rotten's work originally, and 
very well respected on the street. And he said, well, if you start the organization, it has to be professional, number one. Number two, if you have, when you have monthly meetings, everybody's attentive, politely ask questions, don't get into a fist of cups so my indicator is better than yours or your last market call was bad, mine was good. He said, we don't want any of that. It's got to be very, very professional. And I said, yes, Mr. Rotman, that's what we did. And we started the Market Technicians Association with those mandates. And they told us that we had to go out and find all those who wrote a technical market letter for their firm. And they are the only ones that could be members. So Johnny and I ran around the street and we found there were only 19 people that actually wrote a technical letter for their firm. And those 19 members became the first founding members of the organization. And as years went by, friends of mine would say, gee, I'd like to join. And I did a lot of teaching at the New York Institute of Finance, and I taught, uh, I'm very proud of this, I taught most of the, I taught all the traders on the floor of the stock exchange. I mean, it was mandated that they had to take my class. So over the years, I taught hundreds and hundreds of people. And one of them asked us if he could be a a member of the stock exchange because they used charts on the floor. I said, sure, Uh, be a member of the the association. And he gave a monthly speech, which was really very nice. And at the end of it, we were supposed to give him a membership. But we looked at our constitution, and he didn't write a market letter. Oh, wow. Well, we had to change that. You know, you didn't have to be a market letter writer, per se, to be a member of the organization. And it just kept on growing. And I, with the school, the school gave me a little room, and that's where we started the library, the first technical library ever in the history of technical analysis. So now the organization had a little room, a phone, and a dress. <laughs> and those were the humble beginnings of technical analysis. I love it. I've been through the program years ago, and the funny thing to me about technical analysis is, you know, particularly so many fundamental research people are often dismissive. And to me, it often shows such a lack of understanding of history of markets and research that it's been done going back decades. And we'll talk a little bit about this today, but from from various people and organizations that really laid the groundwork for what some of the largest asset managers on the planet do today. But talk to me a little bit about sort of what technical analysis means to you. I mean, as far as the, the toolbox. So any sort of broad sweeping ways you think about implementing it and you feel free to give examples of any indicators maybe as as a uh, way of describing how you think about the world for the, the listeners who may not be that familiar with, with what that phrase and field even means. I like to keep it very simple. When that, my original boss told me, just watch the little X's and O's, you know where the birds are going. He's absolutely right. So I, I start literally every day looking at the trends. I mean, it might sound too simplistic, but it's really where I'm at. And I'll take, you know, I, I think with the computers today and the wonderful machination of data that we have, it kind of gets confusing after a while. I've seen, I've been to people's offices and seen their computers and have all these lines all over them. And I'm, I'm saying, well, how many moving averages do you need? How many uh, sub-indicators, uh, oscillators? And they have a series of oscillators. And I, I honestly, when I look at it, I, let's say I would pull up the Dow, I would have a look at the daily chart of the Dow, and I'd have an RSI, and I'd have a MACD, 
I think that's, you know, or maybe I have an OBV, which would be volume, so I got momentum and volume in there. Uh, that would be my simplest way of doing it. And then I would look at a weekly picture of the Dow, you know, get a, an intermediate-term look, and then I'd look at the longer term and put those trend lines in. I respect trend lines. It's port resistance levels. Very, very important to me. And another thing, maybe it's because I'm an old man, I love Dow theory. I mean, some people are critical of Dow theory, but <laughs> it's worked for the last 52 years for me. Let's unpack that a little bit, because I think that is such a wonderful example of something that's been around for over a century that we actually have never published it, but we wrote a paper on it years ago. And it's an area that I think is a great example of mastery in a way that, you know, you talk about all the different indicators and people wanting to kind of boil the ocean, but really coming down to boiling things down to the the simplest and core can often be one of the most effective measures. Maybe explain what Dow theory is to the, the listeners who um, have never heard of it. Charles Henry Dow was a newspaper reporter in, Ma- in Massachusetts in the late 1800s, came to New York with his good friend, Ed Jones, and started their own company, Wall Street Journal. And in those days, there were no economists, and uh, he wanted to write about how well the country was doing. And in the late 1800s, there was a railroad boom in the United States. It was like their dot-com boom in those days. And he said, well, gee, if I created an average of all the railroad stocks, and if that line was going up, so if the, if the railroad, railroad average was doing well, he said that he assumed that the economy was doing well. Well, he tried that for about four or five years, and it didn't work. And he said to himself, gee, what am I missing? And the light bulb went off in his head, and he said, well, gee, what are the railroads whole products? Who makes these products? Industrials. So in 18, I believe 1896, he created the Dow Jones Industrial Average. So it was a combination of the industrials and the railroads. And he opined that if both of these averages are going up over time, they're mutually interdependent parts of the economy. The economy must be doing well and it's a bull market. And when they start to divert, one going up and the other one flattening out and rolling over, he said, gee, that could be the beginning of a a potential correction or a a bear market. And I have to tell you, in 1970, when the Market Technicians Association had started, one of the biggest things they did, listen to this, this is kind of interesting, the old timers, now that we had a group, got together. I wasn't part of it because I was still a little young guy. And they said, gee, why don't we all go to the Wall Street Journal and convince them that they have to change the railroad average because now we have other things other than railroads hauling products, airlines and truckers. So I believe that uh, the founding members of the MTA actually were responsible for the Wall Street Journal changing, updating their average, and now it's called the Dow Jones Transportation Average. So if it swims, walks, crawls, and flies there, it's represented in that average. So you've got to remember one thing about the Dow theory is that it's not a trading tool. It, it catches major trends, and that was all that Dow was looking for. He wanted to catch the major primary bulls and primary bears, as he called them. And um, most calls, you'll get 
you'll you'll roll over and you won't get a bear market call until maybe you're down may approximately 10% off the high. And you don't get a bull market call until you're maybe 10% off the lows. And people say, well, gee, you missed 20% of the move. Well, that might be true, but you get 80% of the up move and 80% of the down move. I'll take it. <laughs> so if you're a long-term investor. Um that's, again, just one of the inputs I look at. And so walking it forward, you know, it's funny, we did a lot of quantitative studies and, and different people have all thrown their own spin onto Dow theory, made it more complicated, et cetera. Uh, we did a simple test where we just showed using one of the most famous technical indicators being the 200-day moving average, simply, you know, if these two indices were above the long-term trends and what they look like when they're diverging and both down and not surprisingly, the theory works great throughout history, largely from keeping you out of these long bear markets, which uh, we've had a few of in the past um, decade or two. What would Dow Theory be saying today? When the both averages, the Dow Industrials and Dow Transports, broke their uh, lows of last year, 2018, that for me was the uh, beginning of a bear market. And the rally that we just experienced was a kickback rally. If you're a Dow theoretician, it's actually a rally in a bear market. We would have to see a correction here, which I, if we, we're going to talk short term in a, in a few minutes, I'm sure, the market. And I expect a little bit of a pullback. And that could be the beginning of a maybe a reversal in Dow theory, but I have to see the evidence. So to answer your question, uh, as I interpret Dow theory, uh, we got to signal uh, late last year. And so as you, that, that's a good segue into as we take a step back and, and look around the world today, as you wake up and go through your process on a daily, weekly basis, what's the world look like to you? Well, let's talk about the very impressive and exciting rally we had coming right after Christmas. The Dow was somewhere around 21,600, 21, and as of our conversation today, we're uh, around 24,500, uh, 24,600. So we had a very nice move in a very short period of time. I've been quoted recently as saying, I, I call it a vacuum rally. And why I call it a vacuum rally, if you look at the Dow daily, we had this very significant sharp sell-off that started in uh, early November right, and, and ended just around Christmas time. It's like stretching a rubber band and you pull it taut. When you let one end go, it snaps back. So right after Christmas, we got that snapback rally. And again, I'll say it was very, very impressive. We had days that were really, really strong and broad-based, too. I might say everything participated. That's the good news. Now, the bad news, or at least the reality of that rally, encountered uh, what we technicians call resistance or overhead supply. And that means where was their previous overhead churning action in the Dow? And if you go back in time, you'll see that for about uh, a little over a month, almost two months, the Dow churned somewhere in the 2450, uh, 24, uh, 26,000 range uh, throughout the latter part of October, all of November and early December. And that's where we are as of this recording. We're back up into that area. So I'd say you had a very nice near-term rally. It is overbought when I look at my RSIs and my MACDs or close to overbought condition. And that's normal. So I'd say if you're a short-term trader, you know, put 
close stops to those long positions you have because uh, I think we're due for a, a near-term pause or correction. Okay. Now, what I'd like to see over the next month or two is that correction get a little deeper on the downside, just kind of like shake it out and hold above the, the December lows of last year. If we can do that, then maybe that would be the beginning of that successful test that a lot of us technicians are looking for to uh, identify a major bottom, not just a short-term bottom. Moving around the world, one of the nice things about TA is that you know can be used in almost any market. As you, as you look around the globe, whether it be foreign stocks, bonds, currencies, commodities, anything else stand out as particularly interesting or not interesting or something that you're thinking about that other people might, might not be? I tell you, if you take a look at the DAX index, that has been a topping period for quite some time. And uh, I think that probably is one of the strongest markets in Europe. And for some time, I was a little concerned that uh, we had a global situation on our hands. So when you look at the mayhem that's going on and with the UK and the European Union uh, over Brexit, that, and even if you look at the CAC index, and they're still in downtrends, and uh, I don't think their bear market is over. However, as I just said with the U.S. market, we can get a test of the lows, the recent lows, and they hold. Uh, hopefully, I'll be able to change that opinion. So I think you have to be very specific where you move your money around. Okay, and having said that, Go look at a thing called EEM, Emerging Markets. That's the ETF for Emerging Markets. Of all the things around the world, Emerging Markets, to me, if you look at it on a daily and a weekly basis, looks like it's trying to bottom here. And you might say, well, gee, that's kind of odd. Well, Emerging Markets were the worst. They, got, they suffered the most of all mar- world markets throughout 2018 and out in 2019, it's seeming, seemingly to be bottoming out. So it appears that maybe uh, if I were flying at 30,000 feet and looking to buy something that's been beaten down and appears to be stabilizing, it might be the emerging markets longer term. I love it. Well, you know, one of the things that we think a lot about is my ideal setup being combining trend with valuation in, in emerging markets, certainly across any measure would be one of the one of the cheapest markets in the world or sorry cheapest uh, uh, groupings any uh, any thoughts on any other groups whether it be commodities bonds is one that i know is a lot of interest to people uh, or even or even currencies i think you got to look at crude because that's input these days with all that's been going on with the with the price of oil and and late last year or better part of the bulk of last year when crude price fell from the upper 70s to the low low to mid 40s. Uh, That was a huge decline. Had a huge impact on things. Uh, I'm in the camp of saying I think crude is bottoming out. In fact, if you look at the daily bar chart of crude, the MACD and the RSI may respect the higher lows when crude was dropping down, making lower lows late last year. Okay, that's number one observation. Number two observation, if you look at the daily chart of uh, crude again, you'll see that I, I believe a, head, a mini head and shoulder bottom is forming. Now, any move above 55, I think crude could easily go to low, low 60s. 
And that being the case, take a look at energy stocks, XLE, and things like that. I, those are the things I look for for um, correlations, you know, uh, intermarket analysis, as John Murphy would call it, you know, commodity confirming the equity. So my my first view would be energy. So what what as as we think about this, and listeners that are probably more of the fundamental bent that say, look, I've always been interested in this sort of analysis. It makes sense to me. What, what's the best way to incorporate that into my process? You know, as you've taught hundreds, if not thousands of, of students and followers over the years, what, what would be your general advice to someone looking to incorporate a lot of, you know, kind of what we're talking about today with as far as technical analysis into their process? You mentioned something earlier about in the old days, maybe it's a little different today, but in the old days, there was so much criticism about technical analysis. Believe me, I can justify that comment. I have scars on my back fighting for the acceptance of technical analysis. In fact, um, it was I that went down to the CFA people in the mid-80s, 1980s, and I tried to convince them to put a couple of questions of, on the level one of their exam, CFA exam on technical analysis. Well, they weren't too polite to me. I mean, not that they threw me out of their office by any means, but they, 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 they could care less about what I was talking about. And I was really upset about that. And I went back to the organ, our organization, the Market Technicians Association. I said to them, I said, you know, maybe it's about time we start our own exam. Well, myself and a bunch of fellows got together, and that's exactly what we did. And that's called the Chartered Market Technician's Designation. Okay? And we struggled along, and we made the thing, and all the technicians were taking the exam, but no one else was really taking that much of an interest in it. Until the Sarbanes-Oxley Law came out in 2004. The Sarbanes-Oxley Law said that all analysts in Wall Street have to take two new tests, Series 86 and 87. 87 was new rules and regulations. No problems with that. But Series 86 said that all analysts, and I was an analyst in those days, and they said we had to have the equivalent, the equivalent of levels one and two of the CFA before we can be considered an analyst. Well, I was really upset about that. I said, gee, I spent here 40-plus years of my life in Wall Street up to that date, and I said, and now you're telling me I have that fundamentals and my technical is meaningless? So I went back to our organization. I said, give me all the money in your treasury, and we're going to throw it at this problem because if we don't win this argument, we don't deserve to represent anybody. And that's exactly what we did. We went to the stock exchange. We sat down. We talked with them. And the most important date in modern technical analysis history is Friday, December 17, 2004, when myself and a small band of technicians stood in front of 15 SEC lawyers at the New York Stock Exchange presenting our case. I spent that whole year creating a body of knowledge on technical analysis and creating everything that they wanted. And here we were on that Friday of making our final presentation. One of my buddies gets up, David Krell, wonderful, wonderful fellow, uh, spoke three minutes on the history of technical analysis. Ken Tower, another super guy, spoke three minutes on the history of our organization. Barry Sign, another terrific guy who did an awful lot with both CFA and CMT over the years. He spoke three minutes on the history of our exam. And I had the last five minutes in front of these lawyers. 
And I get up in front of them and I said, ladies and gentlemen, imagine if you lawyers were being mandated tomorrow morning to take the medical boards. They're looking at me like I was crazy. I said, assuming you could pass the medical boards, you wouldn't use that body of knowledge in your daily work as, as lawyers. And they all said, yes. I said, well, that's what you're asking me to do. Please test us, but test us on our body of knowledge. And with that, and one of the lawyers jumps up, and man, at this point, my knees were shaking. I was so nervous. And he puts a chart in my face. He says, oh, Ralphie, we see you on television. You're a nice guy. What's fact on this chart? And I stared at the chart, and I looked at him and straight in the eye, and I said, well, price is a fact. And his eyes got wide. And with my finger, I was pressing against his chest, and I said, earnings are an estimate. You restate earnings. You never restate this chart. He turns around and said, Don, he said, that's the best answer I ever heard. I said, you better believe it. Well, March of 2005, several months later, guess what? The SEC accepted technical analysis and exempted from taking series A. If you have a CMT, a Charter Market Technician, is now that exam is on the same level as the CFA. Isn't that exciting? So I answer you, that's a long answer to your question. If I were an individual who is a fundamentalist and want to incorporate technical analysis, by the way, I don't call it technical analysis. I don't call it fundamental. I call it fusion analysis. We should all be doing that. We should get up in the morning. You have to have an opinion of the company. You've got to, have to, you've got to like the company, the earnings and the outlook and everything about the company. And then you go see if the price is right. And that was the whole point. There's a difference between the company and the stock. Hello, come in, America. <laughs> this is where it's all at. And I think uh, the world today is becoming more and more familiar with that. And, you know, you would think that Ralph Acampora would be very excited today listening to TNC, well, it's TV shows, business TV shows, and they're talking about Fibonacci, Liberace numbers, and they're talking about moving averages and RSIs and all that sort of stuff. And I say to myself, does the viewing audience really understand what's being said on television? I don't think so, because they're not educated. And, and number two, do these people that are using these terminals, what's their depth of knowledge of the subject? I mean, they read a book, and all of a sudden they're technicians. So to answer your question, I'm sorry it's so long, but to answer the question, what should an individual do? My answer is immediately go for a CMT. And I'll tell you, it's not easy. It's tough. There are three levels. But they'll force you to read all the right books, and they'll force you to read all the material that is so critical to understanding, using, and uh, the discipline of technical analysis. You know, it's it's funny. So much of it, it's about framing. You and I were on a panel years ago, and I remember you talking about a similar story about the, the PE where, uh, you know, fundamental people often will say, you know, they don't use technical analysis and, and then you deconstruct something as simple as the PE and, and half of it, you know, is literally price. And so it's, and it's the one that usually moves and what people often, my favorite thing is the, the, the fundamental people that look down on TA, the first thing almost always they do when they're talking about a stock is they pull up a chart, um, which already, you know, you just put your palm to your face and smile, but you know, so much of it's framing. I mean, I think part of the acceptance, at least in the past couple of decades, has been broadened by other terms that have a lot of TA origins. I mean, the two big in my mind are certainly just the emergence of, of quants 
over the past few decades. And most quants, vast majority of them are, are using price as a major input. And I always laugh when people say, I've never met a rich technician. I go say, go, go pull up the, the top 10 earning hedge funds. And I think eight of them now are, are usually quantitative shops, but also the other one being behavioral. And, you know, maybe, maybe you could talk a little bit about that side of the business and way TA thinks about it too, and, and, and sentiment, because those have long been uh, sort of technical inputs and, and things that people of our ilk talk a lot about. You talk about behavioral. Charlie Dow wrote about fear and greed in his editorials in the late 1800s. I have to laugh at people that talk about the critical of technical analysis, because it's only in the last, I'd say, 30 years maybe, that the good professors at universities are talking about behavioral finance. And here, we technicians have been incorporating that for years and years and years, and we have measurements of looking put goal ratios and looking at bulls and bears and all sorts of sentiment indicators. That's, that's so typical of what we do, and we've been doing that for so, so long. So, no, no, no. The, uh, the, the use of, uh, of technical today, today I have to laugh because of now with the market becoming so robo-oriented. I mean, a lot of this stuff, these programs are based on momentum, based on moving averages. And people don't, they're not getting the message. That's all technical analysis. So uh, whether they like it or not, it's, it's creeping into their life. And uh, I got to tell you, learn or burn. <laughs> I, I think that's the message. You got you to gotta incorporate technical analysis. Well, it's, it's, it's funny going back on, on the origins too. I mean, I, I know people, there's been a broader acceptance of what people call factors and, and certainly momentum is one that um, has received a whole bunch of academic firepower trends as well. But the funny thing with momentum, almost all the people today cite Jagadish and Titman, but then you say, well, there's been... People, Levy, writing books about it in the 1960s. You, know, you go back farther and further. It's just like it almost always just shows a general lack of perspective on the history. And, and a lot of the books you mentioned, I mean, having gone through the, the CMT program, certainly I think it's, it's an extremely useful exercise to at least, even if you, even if you don't end up using it, to, uh, to understand perspective and the history because uh, there's been a lot of work done over a century ago on a lot of these ideas that people are think they're reinventing today with, with different phrases. So as we, if, what do you think have been the biggest changes for you in how you think about TA over the years? Um, is there anything that, looking back on a uh, Ralph of 10, 20, 30 years ago, where you say, you know, my, my process has changed quite a bit, or I believe something today that I don't believe back then, or vice versa? Um, anything uh, come to mind? Not at all. <laughs> I, I'm- I'm usually asked that question, is anything really different today? Has technical analysis changed? Uh, I say no. Because basically, what are you looking at? Buyers and sellers. I I should change the question around. Have buyers and sellers changed? No. They're still emotional beings. One thing that is different, the ETFs, I mean, where you just bundle things up. I own a bunch of them. When I was talking before, I was talking about XLE and energy and things like that. That's the good news. The bad news, it bothers me a little bit that, uh, you know, we lump all this stuff together. I, I, um, 
go to bed at night worrying that maybe if we ever have a real, real down draft, would a lot of these combined holdings affect the market negatively? Uh, I'm, I'm a little concerned about that. Interesting. I, I certainly think that there's areas where a liquid vehicle may not be a good match with um, certain illiquid holdings. And the, the first thing that comes to mind, of course, is corporate, certain corporate bonds and bonds that on average don't trade that much. But at least you have the benefit of the authorized participants out there that can kind of arbit away. And, and usually arbitrage works over over long periods. But for for some of those illiquid markets, I agree. I, I almost wish that there were certain categories that the SEC, as they're wading through the new ETF rule that's been proposed, it would be interesting to see kind of what they come out with on on the other end. I'm I'm optimistic on some of their some of their ideas, but as with the regulators, they usually get it right, but it but it takes a while. Ralph, as you look back, as as you're thinking about resources, you mentioned mentioned obviously the the MTA and the CMT program, Edwards McGee. What are some other resources that you think are particularly useful? So this could be, you know, anything that you use on a daily basis. It could be software. It could be books that have been particularly instrumental that others may not have heard of uh, that you think would be uh, certainly worth adding to uh, your quiver. Well, there are a lot of very nice books being that have been written. Kirkpatrick and Dahlquist, that's a real fine, they updated periodically. Excellent, excellent read for technical analysis. And again, you have Johnny Murphy, John Murphy, a former student of mine, by the way. I'm very proud of John. He's done some great work, and he's involved with a company called Stock Charts. Uh, I get that service. Uh, I, I'm actually the wrong guy to ask that question because I, I uh, still drive an old car, and uh, uh, I still do it the old-fashioned way. And In fact, I'll tell you something that I do, and I'll, I'll share it with everybody. This was given to me many, many, many years ago, and I still do it. You know, everybody laughs at the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Well, that's that's a crummy average because it's price, it's it's an arithmetic average. It's only price sensitive, and it's not as sophisticated as the S and P 500, which is capitalization weighted. I could argue about that average for a long, long time against the S and P, but. When the old timers gave me, said to me, <laughs> the title was, don't fight, don't ever fight Papa Dow. And uh, we always used the Dow Jones Industrial Average. First of all, if you ask anyone down on the street, how did the market close today? It, it, I bet 90% of them would say, well, gee, I think the Dow is somewhere, somewhere. Yeah, everybody's always looking at the Dow. So whether you like it or not, it's the most popular average. And for that reason alone, it's got to be looked at. But my bosses, in the old days, said to me, here, there's a study you should do it once a year, maybe twice a year. Look at every one of the Dow components, and there are only 30 of them. So how long does it take to look at 30 pictures? A couple of minutes. And calculate technically, okay, what the potential minor rally would be in each one of those stocks, major rally for each one of those stocks, minor decline for each one of those stocks, a major decline for each one of those stocks. And we call it the what-if study. What if, and by the way, you add up all those columns, you know, four different columns, and you get four different totals, and you divide those totals by the current divisor, okay, and you're going to get a what-if. What if I have a minor rally, and all of the Dow stocks would go to their targets that you created? This would be your objective. 
would have a major rally, and you really push those numbers. And if all of them went to the same target, it would be your major upside target. And then you made your minor downside risk and your major downside risk. Okay? Now, of course, we call it what if, because what are the odds of that happening? Not really. Okay? But because some stocks will get to your target, some will never get to your target, some will exceed your target. But what it does, it puts blinkers on your eyes and prevents you becoming wild-eyed bullish or wild-eyed bearish. And I hear comments sometimes from people saying, hey, well, I think the market's going to crash and do this, that. And I say to them, okay, what stocks are going to take you there? And they look at me like I'm crazy. Yeah, so you should do it once in a while. My what-if study, just say, do it for Ralph. And just uh, say, hey, look at this. By the way, I just did it recently. My wild diet, assuming everything goes perfectly, now it goes to 27,000. What are the odds that I have? I don't think so. Wild diet down the downside, everything just collapses. It's about, about 18,500. I don't think so either, but somewhere between here and there, maybe. You know, it's interesting. You, you touched on this throughout the interview that I think is an important point for a lot of people. Um, so many analysts and PMs I chat with get so siloed, not just on their specific sector or even asset class, but also on time frame. You know, and you mentioned in the beginning looking at various time frames, not just short, but medium or longer term as well as a way to, to get kind of out of, get some perspective. And I, I think also looking at multiple markets as a way to think about it. And, and, and you just now drilled it down into not just an index, but individual components as a way to get perspective. And I think that's a really useful exercise because so many people are put on their their blinders for just one asset class or just one time frame, And I think that's that's one of the biggest blind spots. That's a great point. If you're, I don't care if you're a trader or not. You trade differently in a bull market than you do in a bear market. Hello? Are we in a bull market or a bear market? Well, look at the intermediate longer-term trends. That'll tell you how you should trade short-term. People don't do that. That, that blows my mind. That absolutely blows my mind. And I think there's a good piece, you know, one of the most famous investing books, Reminiscence. Remi- I, oh, yeah. I can't pronounce yeah. this. Reminiscence of a stockbroker. Thank you. But one of the newest volumes within the past five years had a, is either a forward or an afterward by Paul Tudor Jones. And it's it's a really wonderful read because you have this old school hedge fund manager that has done exceptionally well over the years, but he talks about how the starting point for so much of his trading is just the 200 day moving average. And he said, you know, something about exactly what you just detailed, which is, you know, you you look at when you're above the market and you trade one way, and when you're below in a downtrend, you trade another way. And you would think, you know, a lot of people would make the assumption that it's infinitely more complex than that. But I think once you reach the level of mastery, you start to realize that, um, you know, simplicity has a lot of benefits as well. Yeah. So listeners, we'll link to that in the show notes, all these uh, pieces, but that's a particularly wonderful something to take a look at. Ralph, as you look back over the career, any mentors stick out as particularly impactful on, on your career, whether you worked for them or and maybe any any major takeaways from uh, from those guys? Oh, sure. The first gentleman was the Harold Screeter, the CEO of Distributors Group, which was a very small mutual fund in those days in the, in the 1960s. 
he actually uh, gave me, uh, he saw that I had this love for technical analysis and I really didn't know the subject well. I was plotting it, but I didn't understand it. So he literally sent me to the New York Institute of Finance to learn more about the stock market. And because uh, I, as I said to you, I was a seminarian at one point. I had history, political science, and theology in college. Okay. So I was really, uh, I really had a background for finance when I came to Wall Street. <laughs> None whatsoever. I could pray a lot <laughs> when I made mistakes. But he wanted me to become a, a, actually a portfolio manager, gearing me up that way. So at the, at the New York Institute of Finance, which, by the way, is, at the time is called, was called and used to be part of the New York Stock Exchange originally, and it was it's called the School of Wall Street, and that's where everybody went. And I took a whole series, series of classes on different subjects, and mostly fundamentals, and then one of them was technical analysis. And the teacher was a wonderful guy by the name of Alan Shaw. Alan Shaw a few years older than me, and he was one of the respected technicians in the street at the time. And one of the classes, he asked, can anyone do a point-figure chart on the board? And I got up, and I was doing all sorts of additions and showing him reversals and all that sort of stuff. And from the corner of his mouth, I said, boy, I could use a good guy. And I practically raped him for the job. I said, I wanted that job. I wanted to be a full-time technician. And he hired me. And that changed my life. And Alan and uh, Harold Screeter were big, big influences in my life. Alan is a dear, dear friend, and uh, he uh, rated number one II for many, many years, uh, institutional investor for many, many years. And then as uh, Johnny Brooks and I started the organization, we met other wonderful people like Bob Farrell, Robert Farrell at Merrill Lynch. He was the... He was the counterpart to Alan Shore at Smith Barney, and, and Bob Farrell was a wonderful gentleman. He was the first president of our organization. Alan became the second president of our organization. These gentlemen were the perfect people to have for technical analysis because they were respected in their own fields, and they had fundamental backgrounds also before they were technicians. It's kind of interesting. Johnny and I were strictly technicians, but, but these guys were fundamentalists and then became technicians. And they had the respect. I have to say uh, those two. Um, I met over the years uh, Richard Russell, Dow theoretician out in San, uh, out in California, and uh, he and I became friends. Had a lot of respect for his work. As I said, you know John Murphy has done wonderful things. So I, I could give you a list that would go on and on and on. But the names that I mentioned are uh, my early years and for sure very, very uh, uh, instrumental in my career. I love it. Bob came up in, uh, in another interview. It might have been with Dave Rosenberg, but somebody was, was quoting Bob Farrell quite a bit, but certainly an old school. They were class acts. You know, they weren't, uh, these guys were serious. They were bright. They were articulate. They were, they were the best way to start this whole thing off, modern day technical analysis. Ralph, as we start to wind down, a question we always ask our guests, as you look back over your career, is there a particularly, and, and yours can be a little different because you've worked um, both as, as analyst and, and PM and everything in between, has there been a most memorable investment, or you could, you could also call it an investment call that, that kind of pops into your head over, over the decades, anything that, uh, that comes to mind? Yeah, well, the... the 
the report that absolutely changed my whole life was in June 1995. I wrote a report called Dow 7000. It was a 58-page report. Remember I was telling you about the old-timers and technical analysis and when we started the organization. I didn't mention a man by the name of Ken Ward. He was of the elk of Ralph Rottenham and all those. John Schultz. John Schultz was a, a author of a regular art, technical article in Forbes magazine for years and years. Those were the senior citizens that, that were around when we started the organization. Well, me, the first evening meeting of the organization, we had a dinner meeting, meeting, and I'm sitting next to Ken Ward. It's like me sitting next to Mickey Mantle, and I, I was just honored to be next to the guy. And and this is 1970. Ken is 80 years old, so that meant he lived through every bull and bear market in the 20th century up to that evening and wrote about it. So I, I, I said to him, I said, Mr. Ward, what was the most difficult market you ever had to work with or write about? And I said, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Ward, that's a stupid question. It had to be the crash of 29. And what a grovelly voice leans over and says to me, no, young man, that wasn't the toughest market. I said, excuse me? He says, oh, don't get me wrong, a lot of us lost money, but we were able to get out because the second leg down, we were able to duck. And uh, he said the toughest market was the early 60s. I said, Mr. Water went up. He said, it sure did. It rolled over every one of us. We kept saying it was overboard, overboard, overboard. You go look in the newspapers, you'll see me and Rottenham and all these guys. We were all wrong because we said the market should correct it. It never did. It just kept going higher and higher. And it pulled back, and we were getting out, and we should have gotten in. And I never forgot that. I never forgot that. And in 1995... I was uh, coming out of the 94th bottom. The market went up 900 points. That was the cover of my report, the Dow going up 900 points without a, without a severe, uh, significant correction. And I said in the report, have we ever seen this before? And I literally, you're going to laugh when I tell you this, I literally went to the New York Public Library and spent a month going through old newspapers. Today, the kids get online and you can get all the research you want. I had to literally <coughs> cough and take in all the dust, reading all the newspapers. I read every day, Wall Street, every day from 1960 to 1966. I wanted to find out what Rottenham was talking about. And that was the theme of my report, the 58-page report. And what I found out then that we had, at, what we had in the old days, and in the period when I was writing this report, was we had low inflation, low interest rates. And I found a fundamental reason for this strong technical strength, and that was the theme of my letter. And I said that uh, I think the Dow could get to 7,000 within three years. I was wrong. It did it in two years. And uh, the wonderful thing about the firm was so excited, uh, and the CEO of the company, because everybody thought I was crazy when I wrote the report. And they allowed me to write the report because it was it was real controversial, but it worked. And uh, I was so excited, and everybody was so excited. Dow hit seven thousand, and the CEO of the firm, a wonderful guy by the name of Rick Simmons, says, "Well, that was wonderful. You and your team, you did a great job. You put us on the map, and this and that." And I was so excited. I said, "Hey, you're going to take good care of your guys." So you're gonna, you know, I was I was saying I wanted more money. <laughs> And he's oh shut up. He said, oh, we'll take good care of you. And then he said, I wanted to get you a gift. And I said, oh, Wick, I've been wanting this gift all my life. He says, what's that? I said, a 1962 Roman red Corvette. 
And he said, okay. I said, it was a joke. A month later, that car was sitting in the lobby of the building, and he had license plates at Dow 7000. <laughs> that was a gift to me. That was the uh, best I ever had. <laughs> oh, Ralph, that's awesome. I love it. I I'll love send it. you a picture of the car. <laughs> yeah, seriously. We, uh, my, my old man had a uh, midnight blue late 60s Corvette. must have been a 67 with a split window. But Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I tell you, I've been I've been lusting after that that vintage oh, yeah. for most of my life. But a beautiful, beautiful car. What else are you up to these days in the wilds of Minnesota? I don't think you know this. I created the largest hand painted chart of the Dow Jones Industrial Average in history. I don't know that. Is no, it yeah. A... Oh wait, no, I, maybe I, I, I think I've seen a, a picture, picture of you. Yeah, Is it, it a barn? Journal. That's right. I have all sorts of memorabilia, Wall Street memorabilia and stuff. My wall charts from my original chart room. It's eight feet high, 22 feet long. I, when we moved out here about eight years ago, I went up into the attic, you know, we're moving stuff, and I found a box I hadn't looked at in 35 years, 30 years. And inside was my war room. And I had four wall charts that size. That's how big the war room was. I had the original war room in Wall Street. And uh, you get a kick out of this. Uh, one of the wall charts, I called my buddies. I said, hey, 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 the war room is alive. And one guy yells out and he says, do you still have the wall chart with the three Dow averages daily? Plotted every day. I had like 15 years of history every day with notations and moving averages. I said, yeah. He says, well, you got to bring it down to the finance museum in Wall Street. They're doing an exhibit on Charles Dow. This was like about 10 years ago. So I bring it down and laying it out and showing the lady. She says, well, can I cut it? I said, I'll kill you. You can't cut my chart. <laughs> so she says, oh, no, no, don't get nervous. She says, I'll, I'll, I'll use it as a backdrop for the exhibit. And, that, and she did that. And then six months later, she calls me up. She says, Mr. Akinpura, she said, uh, uh, the exhibit is over. We're, we're taking things down. She said, I was, your, your chart is one of the most unique possessions we have. Would you donate it? I said, of course. Yeah, I'd love to. And then she says to me, she says, I want to tell you that this little museum is part of the Smithsonian Institute. So we get a chart in the Smithsonian Institute, buddy. <laughs> I, lo- I love isn't it. That, isn't that cool? That's awesome. Yeah, That's it awesome. is. It, it, so it's hanging somewhere in the United States. Very cool. And I hope she didn't cut it. that's 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 a perfect way to round wind it down ralph if if people wanted to follow you um if they were interested in your thoughts and what you're thinking about the world or to the extent sure i'm on twitter i have my twitter account we'll link we'll link to the handle and the show notes ralph it's been a a blessing to have you today thanks so much for taking the time thanks for having me thank you Listeners, we'll add this to the show notes, everything else at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. We'll link to everything as well as you can find the archives and everything else at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast and also on iTunes and all the other apps. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights.